It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? A 22-year-old Kenyan man was found alive in the wheel well of a Dutch cargo plane that had traveled from Johannesburg, South Africa to the Netherlands. Police say on January 22, 2022, the stowaway, whose identity was not released, was discovered hiding after the plane touched down at the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. The plane made a stop in Nairobi, which is where it's believed the man climbed into the front wheel well. Officials say it is miraculous that he's alive. Records indicate the Boeing 747 cargo jet flew above 30,000 feet for most of the 11-hour leg of the flight, where the air temperature can drop to more than 40 degrees below zero. The wheel wells in these aircraft have no heat, and they're unpressurized. Oxygen levels would be thinner than the summit of Mount Everest. Police said the man, who has applied for asylum, is doing well considering the circumstances, and he was taken to a hospital. You know, friends, it's amazing the risks that people will take looking for a better country. Absolutely, Pastor Doug. It's it's an amazing fact, amazing story, this, that this this young man, 22, was able to spend that much time, that high, that cold, in the plane, in the wheel well of the plane, and still survive. Unfortunately, there are a number of stories of people that tried the same thing and did not survive. That seems to be the more common outcome. So really, it almost seems like a miracle is involved in preserving this man's life. Yeah, it's incredible. And they're still doing some research, you know, into exactly what happened. But uh, I'm a pilot, and I know once you get to 14,000 feet, you're supposed to have supplemental oxygen. Here, he was at 30,000 feet Mm. for 11 hours. And, uh, you know, even the folks that climb Mount Everest, they need oxygen at 28,000 feet. And, and the temperature just um, at least 40 degrees below zero. And so it's just incredible. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that story and how it ends. Mm-hmm. But uh, it tells you about how they were seeking a better country and the, the risks that a person would take. Makes me think of that verse in the Bible you find in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the faithful And it says, for those who say such things, and this is verse 14 of Hebrews 11, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. And the Bible tells us that uh, the story of Scripture is really people trying to get from the slavery of Egypt to the promised land or the captivity of Babylon to the promised land. They're looking for that better country. And this is the story of salvation. God is trying to save us from the captivity and slavery of the devil and take us to the New Jerusalem. You know, Pastor, you're looking at an example of folks who have gone through 
incredible ordeals to try and find freedom to get to a better land. Of course, this is one story you mentioned, but I'm sure there are many stories of what people have risked. Uh, shouldn't we be uh, that determined and that committed to seek that heavenly country mm-hmm. that the Bible speaks of so much better than any earthly country that anyone can have? Well, we do have a study guide that talks about this heavenly country. It's called A Colossal City in Space. And this is our free offer this evening. If you'd like to receive this, all you'll need to do is call. Our resource phone number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for offer number 115. That is A Colossal City in Space. It's all about heaven. It's the home of the redeemed. It's that better country that we read about in the book of Hebrews. So we want to encourage you to take advantage of that. If you're outside of North America, you can go to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org, and you'll be able to read that study guide. You can actually enroll in our free online Bible school, and you can not only see that lesson, but all of the lessons that we have in our Amazing Facts series. Well, Pastor Doug, before we get to the phone lines, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you once again that we have this opportunity to open up your word and study. And Lord, we always want to make sure that we're seeking the Holy Spirit, to guide us in our study of your word. It's your book, and we want to rightfully understand it. Be with those who are listening, wherever they might be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we've got a number of folks who are waiting online. And again, good evening, friends, and welcome to Bible Answers Live. Now, of course, there's people, Pastor Doug, listening to us on the radio, but we're also live streaming this on Facebook, on your Facebook channel, Doug Bachelor Facebook, as well as Amazing Facts. We're also on YouTube. And we are on Amazing Facts TV and uh, Good News TV. That's right. And if people want to call in, we still have lines open. If you're calling, the number is 800-GOD-SAYS, 800-463-7297 with your Bible questions. And still plenty of time to get your question on tonight's program. All right. Our first caller tonight is Lawrence listening from uh, Oregon. Lawrence, welcome to the program. My question is, I, I have really... Uh, Lots of health problems, and I'm going through some really bad financial crisis. I just want to know, from the Bible, what will be the best way to uh, look into it uh, and how to solve this uh, financial problem I'm going through? Probably it's not just me around the world that, you know, that are a situation, but mm-hmm. I don't have enough knowledge, you know, of how to find a guidance and to achieve this financial crisis uh, that uh, uh, I'm going through right now. Yeah. Well, there there are a lot of principles in the Bible that uh, talk about finances. In fact, I think somebody said that 20% of the parables and the teachings of Jesus are related to finances. And uh, several of his parables where he, the, the uh, landowner gives out the different talents to the different servants. And he talks about, you know, faithfully investing those things. And, um, you know, of course, these lessons are all compared with the kingdom of God. So the first thing Jesus tells us is to seek first his kingdom, make his kingdom a priority. And then it says all the other things you need. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? Uh, the Lord tells us, don't worry. God doesn't want us to live in a state of worry. If we're faithful in the following the principles, he promises to take care of us. And there's that verse that says uh, in Psalms, I was once young and I'm now old and I've not seen God's people forsaken or his seed begging bread. So as far as specific financial advice, there are a lot of parables or proverbs that uh, give some advice on uh, faithfulness and diligence and investing and uh, uh, even generosity. Um, You know, we have a lesson that talks about 
uh, Bible principles and finances that will direct you to those many scriptures because we can't share all of them right here. Yeah, the lesson is called In God We Trust and it lays out a number of uh, biblical principles dealing with stewardship and finance and uh, what are the principles that we find in the Bible about managing our money. So we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number for that is uh, 800-835-6747 and you can ask for the study guide. It's called In God We Trust You'll be blessed um, by reading that, Lawrence, or anybody who's out there. If you're outside of North America, you can also read it by just going to our Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org or .com. Next caller that we have is uh, Sharon, I guess, or Sharon, listening from Texas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, my question today is, I'm, I'm reading in the book of Acts, um, actually in chapter 9, where Saul, who later became Paul, um, they, it, the story is being described. What happened to him? How he fell, and and um, and Jesus was talking to him. You know, asking him, "Why are you persecuting mm -hmm. me?" And that. But when it gets when it gets to verse seven, it says, "And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one." Well, that's just part of it. But then I went on further. I was continuing reading in Acts. And when I got to chapter 22, and now it was Saul himself who was describing his experience that day and all. And when I got down to verse 9, it says, and those who were, this is him speaking, mm -hmm. and those who were with me indeed saw light. And were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So what I'm wanting to know is in Acts 9, 7, they heard but saw nothing. And then on verse uh, chapter 22, 9, then it says they saw, but they did not hear. It's just total Seems like, like contradicting. Yeah, well, keep in mind, the good news is the book of Acts was written by the same man. So it's not like two different authors disagreeing. Luke wrote both. Uh, accounts. Uh, and in the Greek, when you get to Acts chapter 22, the word here is also similar to the word understand. So the way that uh, I think you could uh, look at these two verses where it seems like there's an apparent conflict. One time it says they heard a voice and it says they didn't hear a voice. Uh, in Acts chapter 22, it's really saying they didn't understand the voice. But it's something like in John, the Bible says that there was a voice that says, this is my beloved son, and some people heard the voice, but they thought it was thunder. They didn't understand it. So evidently, they heard a noise, they heard a voice, but they didn't know what it was saying. And that's why Paul, when sharing this account, or Luke, I should say, sharing this account in one place, he says, yeah, they heard a voice. They know that somebody spoke to him. But when you get to Acts 22, it says they didn't know what the voice was saying to Paul. Only Paul understood the voice of Jesus. Does that make sense? It does make sense. In that point, the way you describe that, but but then it also talks about how the first one didn't see anything, but the second, in the second one, they they did see it. You know, is, is that the same thing? Well, I think they saw the light, they saw the glory, but I think Paul saw Jesus, and uh, they didn't. He was struck blind by what he saw. They obviously didn't see the same thing. The light did not blind them, but I think they saw some glory appeared. So it's almost like they they got a vision secondhand. <laughs> you know, they heard a noise and they saw a light. Paul's the one who really understood the words and, and saw the face. Okay. But yeah, good questions. Yeah, thanks so much, Sharon. Appreciate your question. 
All right, we got uh, Diana listening from Washington. Diana, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor. Thank you for having me. Um, my question is, if my family does not believe in the Ten Commandments, or they believe in them, believed in them, um, but they don't believe that we are to honor them today, um, says that the law died with Jesus, and how would I witness to them um, over something that was so drilled into all of our heads for so long? Yeah, that's a challenge, you know, and, and I'm understanding you're saying that uh, they're, they're Christians, is that right? Yes, yes, uh-huh. Yeah, so it's, it's phenomenal to me that Christians would be saying, um, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. Because in reality, I'll tell you what the issue is. You could go to 90% of the churches in North America and you could preach on uh, commandments 1 through 3 and 5 through 10, and they would say amen. But when you preach on commandment 4, which is about the Sabbath day, they say, oh, we're no longer under the law. Now, there is one church they don't like when you talk about idolatry. Uh, a couple of churches maybe that don't like that. But Otherwise, most Christians have no problems with the law. They all believe don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, don't dishonor God's name. I know because I've preached in many of these churches. But when they hear the Sabbath truth and then they realize that the seventh day is Saturday, not Sunday, a lot of folks start to get nervous and they say, how do we deal with this? It's obviously part of the Ten Commandments. And so they, um, they say, well, we're not under the law. And you say, well, what about the other commandments? Well, they've been reattached. And it's kind of like a person that has one finger that's bothering them, so they cut off all ten and then sew nine of them back on to try to get rid of one. It just doesn't make sense. And the solution, of course, is keep all ten. That was God's plan. Especially the one commandment that begins with the word remember would not be the commandment you'd get rid of. So now we have a book that talks about does God's grace blot out the law? And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Does God's Grace Blot Out the Law? And it answers that question of, you know, under the new covenant, do we still need to keep the Ten Commandments? Look at a number of scriptures. Again, the book is called Does God's Grace Blot Out the Law? And the number for that is 800-835-6747. And uh, you just let the operator know that you'd like that book. Thanks for your call, uh, Diane. We've got uh, Doug listening in Arizona. Doug, welcome to the program. I uh, have a question from Colossians. I was talking to somebody about the Sabbath, and they referred to Paul basically saying that it didn't matter. Uh, well, it says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to the religious festival a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day because uh, they think I'm crazy for honoring the Sabbath. <laughs> and these are Christian people as well. Yeah. Well, I, if you read the way it reads in the King James or the New King James Version, it says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, and it's plural, and it's small s, not capital S. The Jews had several annual Sabbaths that were part of their ceremonial law, these things, along with the sacrificing of lambs and circumcision, were all nailed to the cross. And it talks about blotting out, the, it's in the earlier part of Colossians chapter 2, it says in verse 14, having wiped out or abolished the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The Bible says Moses wrote with his hand the ceremonial laws, 
that would be a witness against them. The ceremonial laws is the law that was a witness against them, written by the hand of Moses. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God in stone, not parchment or paper or leather. You don't nail that to a cross. So it's they're just totally misapplying. The, see, the, the ceremonial Sabbaths came after sin. The Sabbath that's in the Ten Commandments came before sin. It was in the Garden of Eden on the seventh day of creation. And so the idea that, that believers no longer need that day of rest is really absurd when you think about it. Now, I've had two questions back-to-back on this subject. Yeah. Probably ought to offer our lesson on uh, the Sabbath. You know, just to add to that, Pastor, like verse 17, I think, is the key here where it mm-hmm. says, which are a, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at the ceremonial Sabbaths, they're a type of Christ. And if we look at the context of the book of Colossians, Paul is dealing with an issue where there were Jewish Christians who were telling the Gentile believers or the Gentile Christians that they had to keep the ceremonial law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here Paul is saying, no, you don't have to keep those ceremonial laws that were a shadow, but the substance is Christ. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. That's right. All right, you know, the book that we offered a little earlier called Does God's Grace Blot Out the Law actually covers this as well. So that's a great offer for anyone wanting to learn more about that. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And you can also ask for our study guide. It's called Written in Stone. It's about the Ten Commandments. And uh, again, Written in Stone, the number is 800-835-6747. We've got Robert listening in New Jersey. Robert, welcome to the program. Uh, Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, my question's concerning uh, Christ and, and going to the cross. Now, I think it might have been indicated, somebody was telling me in the Gospel of uh, Matthew, that had, ev- had everybody accepted him, and all his people, everybody, and not fought against him, if everybody accepted that he was the Messiah, that he would not have to go to the cross. I mean, I mean that, that, that was more like a backup plan. And then I, I was, this I had to find out about. I know the book of Hebrews says he despised the cross, but I mean, Others say that he had to go. Others say that if, if everybody accepted him, he might not have had. So I, I want to find out exactly, you know, what, what's the um, what's the truth on that? All right. Well, that's a good question. But keep in mind, whenever we ask a hypothetical question, it's hard to prove because uh, all you can do is you know theorize. People will say, well, if if Eve ate the forbidden fruit, but Adam didn't, what would have happened then? Would God have just um, got rid of Eve and get Adam a new wife or would uh, he just have forgiven Eve or so if everybody had accepted Jesus would Jesus have to die on the cross well Jesus would have to die of course the scriptures would be fulfilled no matter what but Jesus would need to die because we've all sinned and the penalty for sin is death and he took the penalty of the saved so just like God uh, asked Abraham to bring his son and offer him and Abraham and Isaac went willingly to the place of sacrifice I'm guessing it's just a theory again, Christ would have died. It just would have been a willing sacrifice as opposed to something closer to a murder. So again, when you start doing hypotheticals, it's all you can do is kind of surmise. Does that make sense, Robert? It makes sense. I just thought it wasn't, I thought it was somebody said it was kind of indicated in the gospel, not really hypothetical, but it does make sense that because he, it, it, it was a blood sacrifice that uh, that needed to be uh, answered, if I'm correct, correct? You're right. Yeah, without the only thing that covers our sin, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's in the Scriptures. So um, Jesus would have had to shed his blood for us to be forgiven. Hey, thank you so much. 
Thank you, pastors. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Next caller that we have is Charles, listening in um, Virginia. Charles, welcome to the program. All right. My, I have a big question about the Ten Commandments. Um, two whys and a how. Um, the Exodus 20 account of the Ten Commandments is what we usually go with, but those stone tablets were destroyed, and Moses had to go back up. And in Exodus 34, verse 10, to the end of the chapter, we can see a drastically different uh, content in those stone tablets of what the commandments are. So why do we go with the Exodus 20 commandments, and why are they drastically different in Exodus 34, the new ones? And how does the Exodus 34 ones relate to us today, if at all? Well, Exodus 34 is not a list of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 34 is, is, in other words, Exodus 34 is not telling you what was written on the stones because God told Moses in the beginning, he said to write the words that were on the first table. Um, so it wasn't a different, it's not a different set of commandments. The Lord is continuing in Exodus. In Exodus, even after the first 10 commandments are given in Exodus 20, then God goes on after Exodus 20. He gives them other laws, ceremonial laws, civil laws, health laws. And he continues to do this here again after Exodus 34. Um, when he says, you know, you're not to make molded gods for yourself. That's not uh, reiterating the second commandment. He's um, expanding on the Ten Commandments. See, then he talks about the firstborn son. And, uh, you know, he does, re he mentions the Sabbath again. Um, he talks about the annual feast. But this is not what was written on the second table of stone. They wrote the same thing that was on the first set. Wow. Yeah, um, I'm just a little amazed. Could you have the verse where it says that, um, says that? Yeah, it's Exodus 34, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tables of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tables the words that were on the first tables you broke. God is saying it's going to be the same words that were on the first tables. Well, okay. And then proof, proof of that now, if you go to Deuteronomy 5, you'll see the list here again. Yeah, Deut yeah, Deuteronomy 5 has the Ten Commandments again. All right, that's um, awesome. All right, and uh, that lesson we offered earlier about written in stone, or uh, did we offer that one? No, not yet. Uh, just briefly, yeah, but we definitely, it's a that good lesson. That would also answer this yeah. more for uh, Charles. Again, the study guide is called Written in Stone, and the number to call for that is 800-835-6747, and you can ask for that study guide talking about the Ten Commandments, and we'll be happy to send that out to anyone who calls and asks. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. Next, we have Carlos listening in California. Carlos, welcome to the program. Well, hello, pastors. God bless you, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Yes. My question is, uh, I heard the rabbi on the phone the other day stating that uh, Isaac was about 37 years old when he was being offered to God. Is that true? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, because it tells us that his mother died. First of all, if I'm not mistaken, um, Sarah bore Isaac when she was 90. Is that right, Pastor mm -hmm. Ross? Abraham, 100. And she dies at 120. And so uh, if Isaac was 37, that would have been uh, after she died, but it has, it has Isaac being offered before she dies. I think it's more likely that Isaac was about 17. So um, when you look at the story before the offering of Isaac, and I think that's uh, Genesis 22, and afterward, 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know why he said that. This is a guy that comes online every day, and uh, he claims to be a rabbi. And I, I needed to ask, and thank you very much for your answer. Yeah, and let me tell you, Carlos, there's a website Amazing Facts has. We haven't mentioned lately, but I tried it again this week. It's working great. It's called Bible Timeline or BibleHistory.com. If you type in BibleHistory.com, you can look at the Bible ages and dates of all these main characters, and you just slide the little slider across. It'll tell you how long Isaac lived. It'll tell you when the main events happened in his life. And I think it even talks about the sacrifice of Isaac or the offering of Isaac in that timeline. It'll tell you how old he was there. Thank you for your question. All right. We've got um, Zach listening from North Carolina. Zach, welcome to the program. It's an honor for me for having to speak with you guys. Um, Thank I have you. a question also related to the Sabbath. Um, I'm a member of a church. A lot of the members there ask me about why I don't come in um, every Sabbath. My main answer is the pandemic. So my main question is, what does the Bible have to say about um, worshiping uh, at a physical church um, every Sabbath? Okay. And so the the idea here, of course, is uh, the importance of gathering together to worship on the Sabbath day. Um, I think we need to be practical. You know, if there's a pandemic rampaging through the country and we know that we can be safer and it's temporary by staying home, there's no sin in staying home because of sickness. It's always true that if you're sick, it's a good idea to stay home, whether there's a pandemic or not. And so, you know, for um, a time to preserve health, um, but I think as a principle, you know, once that uh, the major risk is gone, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So it's very important for us not to forsake, and certainly not permanently. And then you can also read the part of keeping the Sabbath. You read there in Leviticus 23, it calls the Sabbath a holy convocation. That means a convening, a time for us to come together. And then the example you have in the New Testament with the apostles and Jesus, his custom was he went into the temple or synagogue on the Sabbath day. The apostles went from church to church on the Sabbath day. Uh, so it's important for us to get together and, uh, you know, gain strength. Now, like I said, that, that doesn't mean there, it's, a, it's a sin if during a time of pandemic people are, you know, going through some temporary health crisis. But there's always going to be risk for God's people coming together. We're not done, friends. We'll be back with more Bible questions right after this important break. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Are economic uncertainty and an unknown future leaving you with unsettled feelings about the future? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you, eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. But problems are an everyday part of life. So how can we better manage the worry that comes with them? Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. 
So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. It's packed with inspiring information and useful solutions to not only liberate you from stress, but also to prevent stress from building up in the first place. Best of all, these principles all come directly from the Word of God. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Amazing Facts offers some of the best Christian resources for all ages. We hope our products will enrich your life and your walk with the Lord. If you liked the Final Events of Bible Prophecy DVD, you'll love the new Final Events Sharing Magazine. Read gripping content in this visually rich resource and share it with others. Get yours today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Can't get enough Amazing Facts Bible study? You don't have to wait until next week to enjoy more truth-filled programming. Visit the Amazing Facts Media Library at aftv.org. At aftv.org, you can enjoy video and audio presentations as well as printed material all free of charge. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, right from your computer or mobile device. Visit aftv.org. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Hello, listening friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. If you tuned in along the way, we are a live international interactive Bible study. And we're going to go back to our phones in just a moment. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. And we're going to go to our next caller, Pastor Doug. we got Ron listening in Canada. Ron, welcome to the program. You're on the air. Hey, good night, Pastor Ross. Good night, Pastor Batchelor. Very glad to be on for the first time. i got a quick question. Um, who are the two um, anointed ones in Zechariah 4.14? My wife was and I was, were doing our devotion tonight, and we were reading. And I was like, whoa, what is that? Yeah, this would be the same as the two witnesses that you find in Revelation chapter 11. You'll find it says uh, there are the two olive branches uh, that are before the throne of God. We believe that this represents the Word of God, uh, because the Word of God, of course, is uh, enhanced by the Holy Spirit. That's talking about the olive oil. And um, when you think about uh, when it talks about two anointed ones, the mouth says, in, the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. The Bible is compared to a sword with two edges. Um, it talks about the law and the prophets, two characteristics of God's church in Revelation chapter 
uh, 12, it says she keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. And so you've got the law and the prophets. It's like Moses and Elijah. Moses was the law. Elijah was the prophets. And Moses and Elijah appear to endorse the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, I think also in Luke chapter 9, and in Matthew. You find that story all three places. So it's talking about the word of God going through all of the earth. And you find more about this again in Revelation chapter 11. And I think, Pastor Ross, we've got a book on the two witnesses. That's that right. This. I was just looking the book up. Yes. And um, again, if you'd like to learn more about that, just call 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book on the two witnesses. And we'll be happy to send that out to anyone who is in North America. Outside of North America, you can still read the book, but you need to go to the Amazing Facts website. Just amazingfacts.com. Thanks for your call, uh, Ron. We got Alvis listening in New York. Alvis, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. This is my first time. A uh, fairly new Christian here, 23 years old. So, you know, I'm, I, I get confused a lot, and I've never been to church. But uh, anyways, I was I was debating with some friends about the topic of hell, and they were telling me, and I've learned through, uh, through you guys that hell is not eternal conscious torment, and also that nobody is in uh, in hell right now. So I was debating and they pointed me to revelation 20 verse 13 and 14. should i go ahead and read that yeah, yeah go ahead sir yeah all right it says and the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works then death and hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire so, yeah, we have no no contest or disagreement with any scripture. And this is very clear that um, there is a judgment at the end. Nobody's burning in hell now because the judgment hasn't happened yet. Jesus said the judgment is the last day. And uh, so um, there's going to be a time when the wicked are cast into the lake of fire. And it says death and hell. And even the grave is going to be burnt up. You know, Pastor, I just to add to that, I think some confusion is it talks about death and Hades in, in the King James. Another word for that word in the original Greek just simply means the grave. So death and the grave, it's not a place of torment. It just means the grave in the Greek. Yeah, so God is going to, uh, he's going to abolish. Anything going in the lake of fire is abolished. And God is going to abolish death. There'll be no more death, no more weeping, no more funerals. And uh, yeah. Nothing here that says that uh, there is a lake of fire burning now or that it burns eternally. Yeah, yeah, that's what they were telling me. I don't know. But yeah, thank you. That's it. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no, we have a, a good study guide on that. We'll send you, uh, if you'd like a free copy or anyone out there. And it's, it's not what Pastor Ross and I teach. These are just scriptures. And we'll be happy to share that with you. And it's called, Is the Devil in Charge of Hell? And the number to call for that is 800-835-6747. It's one of our Amazing Facts study guides. It's called, Is the Devil in Charge of Hell? Of course, we'll send it to anyone who calls and asks, or as mentioned earlier, you can read it online at the Amazing Facts website. Thanks for your call, Elvis. We have uh, Janice listening in Tennessee. Janice, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I really enjoy your program. It's very wonderful. And thank, thank you for taking my call. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Okay. Um, I was wondering about uh, Genesis 3.16. It's talking about when Eve ate the fruit and disobeyed God. And he talk, and it's saying how the negative part, you know, the sad part of sin for the woman um, 
where it says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Does that mean your desire can be, since it's negative things here, does that mean you could have too much desire for your husband? You know, this is an interest. I don't think it means that. Uh, I, I think that um, this is a place where um, it, it's hinting in the Hebrew that your desire would be to have dominion over your husband. And then God is answering that. He's saying, but he shall rule over you, meaning that the leadership in the family should be coming from the man. And so he, the last statement there in verse 16 is actually dealing with the, the verse immediately before. Uh, that um, you may have a desire to dominate, but you should uh, be submissive. I don't know what your take is on that, Pastor mm -hmm. Ross. Yeah. That's the way I, I, I've understood it. As, uh, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but when I read the commentaries, that's what they seem to indicate. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's saying that there would be an, an over-desire uh, over for your husband that needs to be mitigated. Okay. Okay. That, that helps. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. All right. We've got uh, Robert listening from North Carolina. Robert, welcome to the program. Good evening, uh, Doug and John, Pastor, both of you. I, I, this is my first time, but I have a question as how I would answer verse 19 of uh, Matthew 16. The Matthew 16 and verses 18 and 19 is talking about uh, Jesus is talking to Peter about building his church on the rock. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I believe all that, but I like to know if someone questioned me, how would I answer the follow-up in 19? All right, let me read this for our friends that are listening, Robert. We're always mindful that a lot of people are listening on a radio and they're driving, they can't look it up. And Jesus says, I say unto you that, Peter, you are, uh, well, let me back up, you almost need to read the previous verse where Jesus says, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one in verse 16 who declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And Christ is continuing. And I say to you, you are Peter. Now that word there, Peter, is Petros in the Greek. Petros is a stone that might roll around in a creek or on the beach. You could pick it up and skip it and throw it. And he says, you are Petros, and on this rock, and the word rock there is Petra, I will build my church. Now, people think, well, does that mean that Jesus built the church on Peter? Well, that'd be kind of frightening, because if you look down just a few verses, uh, Jesus turns to Peter in verse 23 and says, get behind me, Satan. So here Peter says something that is spirit-led in one verse, and then he says something that is demon-led a few verses later. And so the church is not built on Peter. Peter was very unstable. Uh, Jesus saying the church is being built on the rock that uh, Peter had declared that Christ is the Messiah. That's the rock of truth. That is the cornerstone of the gospel. The word Petra is talking about a rock of immense proportions. On this rock, I will build my church. Peter says, you are Peter. You're a rolling stone. That's Petros. But on this Petra of what you've declared, that I am the Messiah, I will build my church on that truth. So hopefully that helps a little bit, Robert. And we, we do appreciate your question. A lot of people wonder about that verse. You know, it's also interesting, Pastor, if you look at some of the other writings of Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 
Peter says clearly that Jesus is that living rock upon which the church is based. And he's the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. So there was no confusion in Peter's mind as to who the foundation of the church is. It's Good clearly point. Christ, and he brings that out. Thank you for your call, Robert. We've got uh, Colleen listening in Florida. Colleen, welcome to the program. Hi. Good evening, pastors. Thank you so much for taking my call. My question is in reference to Second Samuel 24 and First Chronicles 21, verses 13 to 14. In the first cut, when God was telling David his options for his disobedience, mm-hmm. in Second Samuel, it, it says seven years of a famine. Mm-hmm. However, in First Chronicles, it says three years of the famine. Yeah. And also, it says the threshing floor was for Arun of the Jebusite in Second Samuel, but in First Chronicles, it says the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. All right, on the second question, those names are the same. Um, keep in mind, they, they didn't have the same spelling alphabet that we use. And when you translate from uh, Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek, um, uh, the, and then now to English, the folks are sometimes wondering what letters to use for people to uh, articulate pronunciation. But it's the same person. This is the Jebusite who owned the property on Mount Moriah. He had the threshing floor there. And David wanted to buy that to offer to the Lord. That later became the place where the temple was built on Mount Moriah. And it's still there today where the Dome of the Rock is. That was the threshing floor of Ornan, according to Second Samuel. Now, the better question you're asking is, why does it say that Nathan the prophet offered seven years of famine in one place and three years of famine in another? You know, the best answer I think I can give you is uh, the Bible's inspired, but sometimes the copyists and the translations are not And as you go from one uh, copy to another, sometimes there may have been a number that was missed. They, they, you know, they look at it and there's very little difference. I'll give you a quick example. I I was a hooligan when I was a kid. And so I wanted to buy alcohol, though I was too young. I was born in 1957. I took my driver's permit when I was, uh, I think it was only 14. And I took the seven and turned it into a two. It's very easy to do, small little line. And it worked for years. And uh, sometimes one little tittle changes the number. And it's probably that the manuscript that they were reading, the seven and the two, it was hard to determine. So those who translated from uh, Second Chronicles, uh, they saw that as a two and another one saw it as a seven, or three rather. So uh, yeah, there are some minor things like that in the Bible that are conundrums. You know, it's interesting in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the mm-hmm. Hebrew Old Testament, which was in existence at the time of Christ, they translate the seven years as three years here in Second uh, Samuel. Oh, so they do the so same. So there's no conflict, no in, conflict the, in, in the, the Septuagint. Septuagint. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Oh, there you go. It's both three months, so. Or three years. Three years. Yeah. All right. Thanks for your call. The next caller that we have is Melissa listening from California. Melissa, welcome to the program. So I'm a little stumped. On uh, Luke chapter 5, um, Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples um, the ministry and the path of it. But before the parable is introduced from verse 6 to 39, he refers to um, fasting with them. And then he says that then they will fast um, in those days when they're taken away. And then the parable goes on if you want to read it for the callers. I'm assuming, and I I don't want to assume that's what I'm calling, that they're referring. It's referring to sin itself. 
Well, let me read this. It says, he, Jesus said in uh, verse 36, and this is Luke chapter uh, 5. He said, no one puts a piece of new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new garment does not match the old. And no one puts wine no one puts new wine in old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new for he says the old is better. Christ is talking about that um, people were going to struggle with change. He had come to bring the new wine, by the way, which is unfermented, of the gospel but a lot of the religious leaders had become intoxicated by their traditions. And he said, you know, I'm going to have to put the new wine in new wineskins, meeting the apostles. He didn't go to the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. They were settled in their ways. They would not listen. He went to shepherds and fishermen and tax collectors, and he put the new truth, the fresh truth, in them. And they were, they were ready, uh, ready to receive it. You know, it's also interesting. We got the the in the first part of the parable, new garment. Nobody puts a a new piece of cloth on an old garment. Well, in the Bible, garments often have to do or a symbol of righteousness. Mm -hmm. And you had the Pharisees who prided themselves in their own righteousness, and they rejected the righteousness that Jesus came to give. And they, of course, claimed their own doctrine, and they didn't want to receive the new wine or the doctrine or the teaching of Christ. So, really, Jesus is addressing something that. Um, well, the disciples were aware of, why didn't the Pharisees accept Jesus? Why didn't they accept his teaching? Well, because they were clinging to their old ways and they didn't want to receive the new, the gospel that Jesus came to give. Thank you, Melissa. Good question. Hope that helps a little. Yes, it does. Just um, one more comment. That kind of explains um, for, I guess, the church itself. It's They kind of implement things in various churches um, may, because of their uh, ideas. Yeah, sometimes it's tradition, and they're not going by the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Next caller that we have is uh, Adley, listening from Canada. Adley, welcome to the program. Thank you. This is my first time. So my question is, why did God choose Mary to be Jesus's mommy? Okay, thank you, Adley. And it says in our notes here, Adley's five years old. Love to hear the young people calling in with their Bible questions. Um, well, we believe that the Lord chose Mary because he knew in her heart that she was sincere, that she wanted to serve God, and that she, was, uh, um, she had faith, and she had lived a life where um, she was dedicated to God. And so the Lord was looking for a young lady who could be the mother who would raise Jesus with devotion, with love, that would teach him the Bible, that would be a good example, that would be a good mother, watch over him and protect him. And Mary had those characteristics, and God uh, chose her for that. And so a uh, wonderful opportunity and uh, great responsibility. Thank you for your call, Adley. Next caller that we have is uh, Tavion, listening from Illinois. Tavion, welcome to the program. Hey, you got it right this time. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning. No, but um, my question is, is that, is it okay, so like for the promises of God, and essentially from what I'm understanding by faith, you know, after years of being a Christian, is it okay for me to claim something even though I haven't received it yet, or I don't feel it? 
Well, yeah, in some cases, if, if you've met the criteria of a Bible promise, then believe. Uh, you know, for example, just start with salvation. When, uh, if you repent of your sins and you confess your sins, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And this is 1 John chapter, nine, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't wait until you feel like you're cleansed. Believe it, thank him for forgiving you, and you will feel better because of your faith. So there are cases where God makes a promise, and he says, you know, for instance, God says, you know, fear not, I'm with you. Well, you may not feel like he's with you. You may not see him with you, but you can claim the promise that he said he's with you. Believe it by faith, and you'll feel better. You know, the Bible says that the righteous walk by faith, not by sight. So it's claiming the promises of God and just holding on to them. And like you say, the feelings come later, but they don't always uh, come first. Faith now, comes first. Yeah. Now, just let me add to this, because th some people will misunderstand the faith in action. Uh, and, you know, I've heard preachers say, just claim God that uh, you're going to have the money to pay for that new house you're buying. And so a person says, I just believe that God wants to bless me. And he's going to help me buy that new house. And I'm going to put down the down payment, even though I don't have a job yet. I'm going to trust it. <laughs> and they get into debt. They're kind of being presumptuous. That's called tempting the Lord. So, you know, there's a, there's a delicate balance between claiming the promises of God and having faith and stepping out in faith. And you want to be careful not to abuse the promises of God and be presumptuous or tempt the Lord. All righty. Thank you so much. Appreciate your call. We've got Lance listening in Texas. Lance, welcome to the program. Yeah, so if a married couple divorce with no biblical reason and they marry again, um, are they going to be living in a constant, eternal state of sin? And uh, my second question related to that is, it is I mean, is, is, if, that's, if that's the case, should they divorce and remain single forever? Yeah, it's a good and it's a practical question. Uh, sometimes people have what you would call irreconcilable differences. Uh, nobody has committed adultery. The, you know, the biblical grounds for divorce is if there's fornication or unfaithfulness. And uh, there may be a couple and they just say, oh man, we just can't handle this anymore. And they separate. They don't have biblical grounds. Then are they free to remarry? According to the Bible, they're not free to remarry. Um, Paul even says you might be better to remain single. Now, if one partner, and this is often, to be honest, sometimes they play the waiting game and they wait for the other one to get married again. They say, well, now they've broken the wedding vow. Now I can get married. And that's not the right attitude. So then you have a third question embedded in your question. And that is, are they living in perpetual sin? Well, I know a lot of people that maybe have gotten divorced and remarried and they do not have biblical grounds, but then they later go through a real conversion. An example would be King David. King David definitely did not have biblical grounds for taking Bathsheba and killing her husband. But after David thoroughly repented, and they actually, I mean, they suffered. He lost the baby and a son and lost actual several sons because of his sin. Um, the Bible says David comforted his wife. God refers to Bathsheba as David's wife. Solomon then later comes through Bathsheba, and so does Jesus. So he ultimately forgave her. He forgave the woman in, uh, who... Um, was at the well who had had five husbands. And when Abraham had an affair with Hagar, or, you know, had a concubine, she was sent away and Sarah was his wife. And so, you know, sometimes we, 
we scramble the eggs and you can't unscramble them, but it doesn't mean that this is the unpardonable sin. But I don't want to leave people with the impression that they can just get married and divorced and married and divorced. The Bible is clear that that is a sin and it, it hurts families, it hurts people, it hurts society. You know, we do have a book, Pastor Doug, dealing with the subjects called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who wants to learn more about what does the Bible say on the subject of marriage. The number for that is 800-835-6747. That has our resource phone line. And you can ask for the book. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. We'll be happy to send it to anyone in North America. Thanks for your call, Lance. Uh, we got uh, Claudette listening from New Jersey. Claudette, welcome to the program. I would like you to explain for me why the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, is different from the one in Luke chapter 11, verse 2 to 4. And the second part of my question is, in, in verse 4 it ends, but deliver us from evil. While in Matthew it ends with, um, verse 13, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, Claudette, good question. Let's, let's talk about that. When the Lord gives the uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, it's actually not the Lord's Prayer. If you want to know the Lord's Prayer, that's probably John chapter 17. It's actually a prayer for the disciples. And uh, he says, when you pray, pray in this manner. Now, when you read it in Matthew, and that would be in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 9, it says, when you pray, pray in this manner. Jesus probably repeated this more than one time and told them that this is a pattern for prayer, meaning you don't have to say it exactly the same way. They're, they're points and they're principles. And what I love about uh, the Lord's Prayer is you've actually got seven petitions that you find there in the Lord's Prayer. And it's kind of divided up like the Ten Commandments where you've got the first 40% deal with our relationship with God. The last 60% deals with our relationship with each other. Talks about, uh, it says, Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will are the first three petitions. And then you've got, uh, you know, give us, forgive us, uh, lead us, deliver us uh, in the later petitions. And so um, it's, it's divided up by, you know, same way as the Ten Commandments. So same principle. So Claudette, I think that Jesus said the Lord's Prayer to the disciples more than one time as he went from town to town and he would teach people how to pray. Sometimes he tells his parables with a little different spin. You'll see that. Hey, listening friends, thank you. I don't think we have time to take another call, but we do want to remind you that Amazing Facts is something you can uh, listen to all week long by going to the website, or you can go to the Amazing Facts TV channel. That's aftv.org. Thank you for keeping the program on the air. You can go to the website and donate, and we'll be back in a moment with some rapid-fire questions. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. For those of you who stayed by, we took a little break because of our friends on satellite radio. They had to close the program just a little earlier. We want to thank you for your many questions that you've emailed to us. And Pastor Doug, we're going to try and answer as many of these questions as we can in the next two minutes or so. So here's the first one. The question is, when will Armageddon occur? Well, Armageddon, of course, it's in the future. It's not a battle between China 
and Russia, and people are paying a lot of attention to Russia right now, and Israel or anything like that. Armageddon, it says, is when the dragon makes war against the woman. And you see Jesus coming in Revelation 19, uh, conquering and to deliver his bride. The ultimate part of Armageddon is at the end of the 1,000 years when God totally defeats uh, the enemies of his people. Okay, another question that we have. How long was the time frame of the 10 plagues of Egypt? The Bible doesn't tell us specifically the dates of months or weeks or days, but uh, based on the context, it seems like the plagues come back to back rather quickly, something like the trials that came to Job. It seems like they came one right after another. And so um, we think it was probably a matter of months. Probably all of it happened somewhere in the span of about uh, 45 days or so. Okay, another question is, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, it says, having been made better than angels. Can you explain? Yeah, well, Christ, of course, is, uh, he is the angel maker because you know, he made all things that may have been made. But uh, he also uh, became a man. But after his resurrection, he is higher than the angels because the angels worship him. And so the only one we're supposed to worship is God. So that's why it's saying Jesus is not just a man. He's better than the angels because the angels worship him. Okay. Uh, next question is, uh, is the Elijah message the same as the three angels' messages of Revelation 14? Well, the final Elijah message, it's talking about a message that brings the church to revival, is uh, going to be done during the same time as the three angels' message, but it's more of a message of calling people to return to God, whereas the three angels' message is more specifically warning people about the coming judgment, coming out of Babylon, the mark of the beast, and the coming of Christ. Okay. Well, Pastor Doug, that's probably it for all of our questions for this evening. Just a reminder, friends, if you have a question, you can email it to us at balquestions at amazingfacts.org. Thank you, listening friends. As I mentioned before, if you want to support the program, just simply go to amazingfacts.org and click the donate button. Help us share the truth with others. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.